All right, welcome everyone. We are going to be on page, really the end of page 13 and then page 14 this evening. 13 and 14, that assumes you have a notebook. If you don't have a notebook, there are some up here on the counter, so if you need one, you can fetch one. And there's already been some talk about the uh, chairs, and several people have uh, said the same thing. It's to keep us awake. Those comfortable chairs, we're putting everybody to sleep. So what it really is, is we've uh, transported 40 chairs into the auditorium. So we're trying to make some extra space in the auditorium. And eventually, the uh, class over there will lose their chairs also. But we lost ours first. And then uh, we'll start moving their chairs in there because we just need a little bit more seating. So that's that's the reason. So hopefully this will uh, work okay for you guys. Yeah, that's true. That would uh, that would get people to sit in the front row, wouldn't it? That's a good idea. The next step is going to take the chairs away. Everybody stand. Yeah. Be here by myself then. Bring your own lawn chairs. Why did your lazy boys come? So we started the New Testament last week, and last week also happened to be the beginning of our new semester. I have to stop right here because I glanced to my left, and Emily is on the front row. Congratulations to Emily for being willing to sit on the front row, even without a cookie chair. But Emily, is that like a diary or a journal? It's a journal. It's not... It's a note-taking. Okay. Her. Would you like a notebook? No. You don't want a notebook? I have one at home. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can follow along with one over there, or you can do your journal. I like to. Okay. All right. And then at the end of the class, That's we... What happens when you sit the <laughs> At the end of the class, we want to see what's in that journal, all right? All right. Very well. So we started the New Testament last week. It was the first week of our new new semester. And we covered most of what's on page uh, page 13. And at the end of page 13, there was the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I made the point then that uh, many of these encounters that you find in the Gospels are about communicating that, that the Gospel is for every person from every walk of life. So Nicodemus is an example of a person who has status in society. He's a religious person. If anybody is going to heaven, it would be Nicodemus, except Jesus says you're not, except you be born again. So it's a very important encounter in that regard. And then we're going to see in just a bit, at the beginning of page 15, is another encounter with a woman at the well. But before we do that, on page 14, let's fill in the events that we looked at last week. The eight events that we looked at. The first one is the birth of Jesus, top of page 14 in that box, the birth of Jesus. And then the move to Egypt. So the birth of Jesus, the move to Egypt. And then thirdly, the return to Nazareth. Birth of Jesus, move to Egypt, return to Nazareth. Then temple teaching is number four. Baptism, Jesus' baptism, number five. And number six is his temptation. And then number seven is the uh, calling of 
the apostles, the apostles. And then born again, Nicodemus is number eight. So the birth of Jesus, the move to Egypt, the return to Nazareth, temple teaching, Jesus' baptism. Number six is his temptation. The calling of his apostles is number seven. And then born again, Nicodemus. Now those are all on the previous page, so you can just flip over and do them on your own. But those events now, of course, those numbers correspond on the map you see on the right to showing you where <clears throat> these events took place. So they're numbered on the prior page, but they are numbered on the on the map so you can see where they happened. All right, page 15 then. And you have these encounters of various kinds between Jesus and Nicodemus. I mentioned the rich young ruler uh, last week. Now at the top of page 15, you have Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. This is important for a few reasons. One, as I said, it's to signify that Jesus is the solution to the problem that everyone has, no matter their background, their their walk of life, their station in society. And here he's uh, encountering this Samaritan woman, and he's talking in public to a woman, which was uh, which was not customary. But Jesus uh, Jesus graced this woman by uh, being willing to to speak with her. But she was not just a woman; she was a Samaritan woman. And to be a Samaritan woman was to be despised by the other Jews. So not only is Jesus speaking with this woman and gracing her by that fact, but also uh, he's talking to someone who was an outcast as far as the Jews were concerned. Now, why were the Samaritans outcasts? Because they were half-breed Jews. Uh, they were the products of interbreeding of Jews and, and non-Jews. So they were half-breed Jews and thus despised by full-bred Jews. And so they were separate. They were separated from the Jews uh, in a few ways. One, they had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They also had their own mountain uh, on which they worshipped, Mount Gerizim. And in fact, in the encounter in John chapter 4, you may remember reading that as they're talking and Jesus begins to hone in on who she is and her sin. She says, I perceive you're a prophet (laughs) and our fathers worship at this mountain, your fathers worship at this other mountain, you know, which which is uh, which is the correct place to worship. And Jesus says that uh, my worshipers will worship neither at this mountain. The time is coming at this mountain uh, or at any other. But. Rather, it's my doctor calling me. But if I live through this session, I'll call him back. Okay. It is, man. That's a pretty late night. Uh, pretty late night call. Just a billing question, by the way. I don't have anything really bad going on, as far as I know. But the time is coming when you will worship neither in this mountain or that mountain. But uh, the Father desires worshipers, seeks worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. John. 424. So they had their own version of the Pentateuch. They had their own place of worship, their own their own mountain, and they were despised. And despite all of that, you know, Jesus speaks to her about her spiritual her spiritual need. And then you've got in events 10, 11, and 12, 
the greater Galilean ministry, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, and then the healing of the Phoenician woman's daughter. In all of those, you've got healings going on. Uh, in number 10, the greater Galilean ministry, you see there it says Jesus began his ministry in and around the greater Galilean area. He did much of his teaching and healing in this area. So I'd like to take those three together and just talk a bit about uh, the healing ministry of, of Jesus. Because as you read through the Gospels, and you see Jesus encountering people with all sorts of maladies, you find him healing them. And then on some occasions, you find his first followers, the apostles, doing that as well. Which then raises a question. Why don't we do that? Why don't we, why don't we heal people? Why don't, why don't I heal people? Why, why don't we get on TV and start, start healing people? You know, I grew up Pentecostal, uh, most of you know. And in our church, we would often, um, virtually every service, we would have people come forward. Folks would pray over them for, for healing. And there would be claims of, of healing that would, that would go on. Uh, the, the truth is, in all the years uh, up through age 19 that I was there, uh, there was never a verified case of someone getting healed of something miraculously. Uh, you know, if you had a cold, we would pray for you, and in a week to ten days, you would be you would be fine. <laughs> so if you count that as a as a healing, but nobody healed of cancer. You know, nobody who has a short leg growing a, a longer leg or any of that kind of kind of stuff. So so why is that? Why do you have Jesus doing all this? Why do you have the apostles doing this, and then we're we're not? Well, I'd like to spend a little bit of time going through that with you. And it means differentiating some some terms that are not in your notes, so if you care to jot these down. Uh, but one a pair of terms is sin and suffering. Sin and suffering. So there's sin. We all know what that is. We're all experts in that, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, but then there is suffering. And, and suffering is part of the effects of sin. The reason that there is suffering in this world is because of sin. It's because of the the fall. If it were not for Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, then there would not be uh, sickness and suffering and and death. So suffering encompasses all of the maladies that we experience in a fallen world. Uh, Sickness, death, disease. Uh, There's environmental suffering. There's earthquakes and volcanoes and, and hurricanes. The, the Bible says that in Genesis 3, the ground itself was cursed because of the entrance of sin. And then Romans chapter 8 tells us that the creation itself groans. So suffering encompasses all of that, but sin is the cause. So you've got sin as the cause and suffering as the result. But they're not the same thing. One's the cause, one is the effect. Now, I'll tell you why that's why I care about that in a minute. Sin and suffering. And then related to that, if you just have sin and suffering, if you just write underneath that moral under sin, under the word sin, just write moral. And then, uh, and then under suffering, write situational. Situation. So there's moral evil and situational evil. Moral evil is is sin. Situational evil is suffering in the in the various kinds of situations in which people find themselves. All kinds of them. So there's moral evil and situational evil. 
All right, here's another pair of words right underneath this. Underneath sin and moral, there's, um, there's power. And under suffering and situational, there's penalty. So in, in regard to sin and moral evil, uh, that's the power of fallenness. That everyone who is outside of Christ is under the power of sin. Is under the power of moral evil. That power has not been broken. When you come to Christ, that power is broken. With regard to sin and moral evil. But then you've got... Um, but then you've got, under suffering and situational, you've got uh, the penalty for sin. That's the effect. Part of the result, the consequence of the fact that we sin and we live in a fallen and sinful world is that there is sickness and disease and all of that. All right. So why do I care about any of this? Here's why. Because sometimes people mix up those categories, and it really gets messed up. And how does that show up in in real life. When I uh, used to work a real job and I was a computer programmer, uh, one of the guys that I worked with for a period of time was a guy named Cass. And Cass held a Bible study at our workplace. So I started attending the Bible study that Cass did. I got to know him, got to know a few of those who attended there, but in particular I got to know him. And as I got to know him more, it turned out Cass had some weird beliefs. And one of the weird beliefs he had was that there were demons behind every bush. There were demons everywhere. And in fact, demons were responsible for all of the bad stuff that happens in the world, including the bad stuff that he does, Cass does. So he told me that for years he suffered with a demon of anger. Demon of anger. And so he has to have this demon of anger expunged. He has to have this demon of anger you know, cast out of him. And the demon will follow him sometimes. He was telling me a story about being in a mall. And he was uh, walking through this mall, and all of a sudden there was just this horrible odor. And he looks around, and there's nobody around him. And he's thinking, I showered. It's not me. <laughs> And so, you know, but he goes for a little while longer and the, the odor goes away and then he's in a store and the, the odor is back. And anyway, Cass somehow was able to divine that this was the demon of anger following him around. Now, you know, that's an extreme case. I, I chatted with him several times about that. And I said, so the demon is responsible for your anger? I mean, what about you being responsible for your anger? Because you see what this does. This removes the responsibility from him to this demon. I'm being oppressed by a demon. So finally I said to him, uh, look, I know this demon's name. And people who do this, they're big on naming demons, by the way. But I know this demon's name. His name is Cass. <laughs> I mean, that really is the name of this demon of anger. It's, it's his anger. Now, as you read through the Gospels, and you read through people who have been demonized. They, they, um, they're afflicted by demons. Which category do you think they fall into? Of these two categories that I've given you, 
sin and suffering. Which category do they fall into? And so when Jesus heals them, what's he healing them of? They're what? Well, you have all flunked. I didn't answer. <laughs> it's uh, well, if I heard right. But demons are afflicting, inflicting suffering upon those individuals. And in fact, there isn't a single case where it's clear that these people are suffering because of their sin. They're simply suffering in all of them. And likewise, when people are sick, what category does that fall under? Suffering and, and disease. When Jesus did these healings and when he did these cast, casting out of, of demons, this was all alleviating suffering. It said nothing about the other category. Whether or not these people had had their sins forgiven. In fact, on a couple of occasions, Jesus warned, I have healed you, but if you're not careful, you'll have seven demons worse. Why? Because there's a much there's a much larger oppression that you have than this particular demon that I've of of sickness that I've cast out. And that is of sin, of moral evil, of the power of sin that it has that it has over you. So there's not a single example, not one, of someone who is who is suffering and suffering even with a demonic uh, demonic oppression because of their sin. They're simply suffering as a form of evil in a fallen world, situational evil. Yes. I have read that um, people get the demon because they are in sin. Right. Is that true or no? Nope. I mean, well, that's, how do they get in? Well, let me say, how do they get in? I mean, this they is. Um, well, so uh, if, if what we're, the question is is can that be done to a Christian? The answer is no. And uh, and so uh, in that sense, it's because of sin. But the sin is that you're not a Christian. But it's not that um, that there's the way many many of these uh, teachers uh, say it because you've given the the demon a crown. <coughs> to enter or something like that. That's the way they term it, if any of you have heard that. So you can't give the you can't give the devil ground and entry. And 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 then that goes to sometimes demons have whole territory. Because ground has been given. So now there's territorial evil that's got to be cast out. And in all of that, the Bible doesn't say anything about they entered because and they were able to influence these unsaved people. So they are unsaved. And so it is sin in that sense. But there's nothing that says there's a specific sin or something that they did that allowed this to, to happen. And in fact, you know, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, this is not someone who was possessed by a demon, but was certainly harassed by a demon, and that's Job. And where what ground had Job given? None. He was giving no quarter, but he was harassed by by this by this demon, nonetheless. And we know the story behind the scenes that Job never knew that this was an encounter between God and and Satan. Phyllis, 
the moment test. Okay. Somebody else have their hand up? Yes. Um, wasn't there a time when Jesus healed? He, it was in the synagogue, and I think it was the, the man with his hand was withered, but he said, Your sins are forgiven before he healed. Isn't that a time where he, the sin was forgiven first? Uh, and, and as I said, there were times where Jesus healed, and then he said, if you don't have your sins forgiven, then you're going to have you're going to have worse problems. So this is just a temporary uh, relieving of this situational evil, this suffering, this penalty for sin. But you've got to have a healing of the sin, the the moral evil, not just the situational evil. So when Jesus says that. Sure, this man needs his sins forgiven, but Jesus doesn't say the reason your hand was withered is because you did this. And in fact, take it a little bit further. John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, you know, the apostles come and the apostles are kind of like Job's friends. Because remember, Job's friends are sure that the reason that Job is suffering situational evil is because of moral evil. They're switching the categories. And that's why they come. Job, you've got a woman on the side. Remember that? I mean, that's my paraphrase. You've got some kind of secret sin going on here. That's why this has happened. And then in John chapter 9, the apostles, as Job's friends, come and bring this man who was blind from birth to Jesus, and they say, Who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus is neither one. This is situational evil, this is suffering. This is the penalty of sin. Now, in the large sense, we all suffer because we live in a fallen world and we live in a fallen world because we are all sinners. But there's no one-to-one correspondence between those. So Jesus goes around relieving suffering. And he doesn't mix the categories. And there are all sorts of teachers out there who have demons doing things in the one category when the Bible only has them doing things in the other. Demons only inflict suffering and situational evil. Guess where moral evil comes from? Guess where sin comes from? That's us. So we can't do this two-step and go from the one category to the other. And yet that's what so many that's what so many people so many people do. So that's one. I want you to see that as you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus' healing ministry. He is doing something benevolent. He is showing himself to be a good and merciful God by relieving suffering. But it's only a temporary relief if the person doesn't have have the sin problem uh, taken care of. So he's showing himself to be that, but he is also showing himself to be God. To be the the promised one, the Messiah. That he's able to do this. And do you remember how many times that he uh, he he heals or does some miracle, and people say, "What manner of man is this?" This is designed to point to the fact that he is the is the Messiah. If you want examples of that, in Mark chapter one and in Mark chapter four, Mark chapter one and Mark chapter four, uh, in he, he, you have two incidents where, in the one case, Jesus calms the sea. We're all familiar with that. And Jesus says, peace be still. And in another, he casts out a demon. And in both cases, he says, be quiet. 
And if you put those two together, Mark 1 and Mark 4, calming of the sea, casting out of the demon, they're almost exactly parallel in terms of what he says and what people's reaction is. Who is this? So Jesus is doing two things when he relieves this suffering, temporary though it be. He's showing himself to be a benevolent God, a merciful God. But most important, he's showing himself to be God, to be the Messiah. Now, related to that, Jesus did this kind of benevolent work in a command-control kind of way. He just said, let it be done, and it was done. And the apostles were able to do the same kind of thing. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple. There's a man there begging. And Peter says, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. Take up your mat and walk. Command and control. He says, get up and walk. Stop. I always like to kick this dog when I... He doesn't say, if you have enough faith. He says, get up. Why? Because he has God has given him the ability to do that. And Jesus, of course, had the ability to say, command and control, get up. We're going to see the raising of Lazarus in just a little bit. You know, and, and Peter is able to say to Tabitha, Arise, a girl who has died. And how much faith did Lazarus have when he's in the grave? The answer to that would be zero. None. How much did Tabitha have? None. So the apostles and Jesus didn't need any sort of way out of this. They knew how to do it. They had the ability to do it. But they did that in relieving suffering, did it in a command and control kind of way, and then as you go forward in your New Testament, and the decades pass, and the apostles are passing off the off the scene, and they are writing instructions to now the church and to and to church leaders that were not apostles. How do they go about? What are, what are we supposed to do? So as you read as you read the letters of the New Testament, do you find do you find us being told, go and cast out demons, command and control? And the answer is no. Because we can't do that. The reason we're not on TV and the reason I don't have is because I can't do that. Sorry, I can't. One, I'm not Jesus, and two, I'm not one of the apostles. So I can't do it. So what does what do the letters say to do? You go to James chapter five, James five, you know, fifteen and sixteen. If anyone is sick, what? Call. Yeah. And does everybody get healed of their sickness? You know, does Paul get healed of his? Apparently physical malady, a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, three times. I pleaded with the Lord. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord chose not to do that. What does Paul say to, to Timothy? Timothy's sick. In 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5.23, and he says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. So, using this in a medicinal way. 
So why is all of that then? How are those guys able to do this command and control thing and then we're told, you know, take medicine and, you know, call for the elders and sometimes people will be healed and sometimes they won't? Why is that? What's the difference? There's a shift, a major shift between Jesus presenting himself as the Messiah, as God who is merciful and has the power to do all of this command and control, and a shift from the apostles who the Bible tells us their calling, their purpose was to be foundational. They were founding the church. They're doing something that only happens once. You only found something once. So they're doing something unique. And Ephesians 2.20 tells us that. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And this ability to do this, do these miraculous things in a command and control way, attested to them being special emissaries of, of Christ. So Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 says that this uh, this gospel that was delivered to us was attested, confirmed to us by those who were with him. And then the next verse talks about signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit did. Confirming, attesting the message that they claim that Jesus is alive. So I tell you all that because you on page 15 you see these healings, you read through the gospel, and if you should wonder, are we supposed to be doing that? Naturally, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing that? So I've tried to, to show you the relationship between sin, moral evil, and suffering, situational evil. And the foundational nature of what Jesus as the Messiah was doing and then what his first followers, the apostles, were doing, they had an ability we don't have. So when we get involved in spiritual warfare, how do we carry that out? Where would you go if you were gonna if you were gonna say, Well, hey, how am I gonna fight evil then? Yeah, but where do you where do you get that? Where do you get prayer? Where'd you get that in the Bible? Um, prayer is is one of the weapons, but we're given this whole panoply of weapons in Ephesians six. Put on what? Put on the full armor. Why? Because this because you're in a war, and this is spiritual warfare. But here's how you do it. And yes, you've got prayer is is one of the weapons we wield. But there's the sword of the spirit. There's the shield of faith. There's the helmet of salvation. All of that. And so that's, and you would think in the classic passage in the New Testament, the longest passage in the New Testament on spiritual warfare, if we're supposed to be out there commanding demons to, to leave, heal people in a command and control way, in that classic passage on spiritual warfare, that's where it would be, wouldn't it? Here's how you battle in spiritual warfare. But instead, it's doctrinal truth, it's prayer, it's commitment to God's word, an understanding of the salvation we have and living out the implications of that. All right. Back to page 15 then. So you've got all of this this healing that's, uh, that's going on. 
And then you've got the transfiguration, middle of page 15. And we discussed that briefly last week. That's from Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 and verse 1 says, After six days, Jesus took them to a mountain, them being Peter, James, and John. And he, he showed himself to them. He was transfigured, transformed before them. And they saw his, his full glory. And we connected that to a couple of things. One, that's Matthew chapter 17, verse in the first few verses of that chapter. But in Matthew chapter 16, at the end of Matthew 16, the very last verse, verse 28, I believe it is, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And then the next verse is chapter 17 and verse 1. And that's where I was telling you the chapters can mess you up sometimes. Because then, right on the heels of that, you have this event of them seeing the Lord as he will come in his glory. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16, you have Peter, one of the three who was there, saying, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. For we saw his glory. We beheld his glory. And He's referring back to this event of the transfiguration. All right, and then you've got the move to Jerusalem. And in the move to Jerusalem, you see at the beginning of the fourth year of Jesus' ministry, he left Galilee for the last time, and he headed for Jerusalem, where a few months later he would be crucified for the sins of the world. You remember uh, this event um, in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is starting this trek to Jerusalem. But he says to his apostles, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say that you're Elijah. You remember that? And then Peter says, uh, you are the Christ. Who, then Jesus says, that's who people say. What do you say? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's been all kinds of debate about what is this rock. And Peter's name means rock. And so the rock could be Peter. There is the confession that Peter just made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So upon this rock, the rock of this truth, my church will be built. My own, my own view is, you know, Roman Catholicism notwithstanding, and what they do with Peter as the first pope, I still think that's actually Peter that he's referring to. I think a lot of us are afraid to say it's Peter because then that means he's going to be the pope. But the truth is, Peter is the guy. I mean, if you, if you just go a few weeks later, guess who the guy is? It's Peter. When you get to the... After the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and he ascends back to heaven, the, the, the guy who's always speaking is Peter. Acts chapter 1, Peter stands up and he instructs the group. Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, it's Peter. Acts chapter 3, it's Peter who says, silver and gold have I none. I mean, Peter's the center of this thing in the, in the, in the founding of, of the church. It doesn't make him the Pope, but... 
But nevertheless, there's that. But to the point about the move to Jerusalem as Jesus then goes into his final days. In that same chapter, in fact, right after that whole episode where he says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. And then Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. And they all know what is going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. Because he has made all kinds of enemies in Jerusalem. So Peter says, no, Lord. And Jesus Jesus says, I must go. And there, I must die. And Jesus said, and Peter says, no. And do you remember what Jesus says then? Oh, you were Pope for a day. <laughs> you had your five minutes of fame. <laughs> you were Pope for five minutes. Because then he says, get thee behind me, Satan. To Peter. I mean, just verses later. Now, what's that about? Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, from from moment one, and in fact, of his birth, but going all the way back to Genesis 3. Remember, this is a battle between your seed and her seed. And he, you will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So there has been this spiritual battle going all the way. And then at the birth of Jesus, Herod tries to snuff out all the Jewish baby boys. Jesus is spared by the move to Egypt. And, uh, but, but all of that is an attempt by Satan to thwart the plan of God. And Satan knows that his days are numbered, and Jesus knows that anything that would stand in the way of him going to the cross is nothing other than a satanic attack. And so he minces no words that I must go to Jerusalem. Now, as you just think about that, um, here's, here's God the Son as man walking the earth, come with his eternal purpose now to carry out. His eternal purpose to carry out. He's the lamb slain from when? Before the foundation. So he knows what he's come to do. And nothing is going to stand in his way. This is the sovereignty of God. God is going to carry this out. And nothing that people can do will keep it from happening. And in fact, people who think they're doing their own will are actually carrying out the will of God. It's an amazing thing. So that after it's all over, Peter can stand up in Acts chapter 2 and he can castigate then the, the, the people of Israel for having with wicked hands slain him. And yet this is all in the plan of God. So I'm just highlighting for you that in the life of Jesus you see both of those things going on. You've got the absolute sovereignty of God and yet you've got the responsibility of sinful people held responsible for the sin that they carried out in a murder of an innocent man. But God used all of that in his plan. Yikes. So never make the mistake, friends, of thinking that people hold the key. You know, people just drive in the direction... You know, God starts the engine. God sticks them in the car he wants them to be in. They drive it in the direction that he's determined they will go. 
But they're going in the direction they want to go in their sin. And it all works out exactly according to according to his plan. So I tell this story to show that interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility about uh, a devout woman who used to put her head out the window and pray every day out loud. And there were some ornery boys who would hear her praying. And they said, you know, we're going to show that stupid old woman because she would stick her head out there and pray for God to supply her needs for that day. And Lord, I need some groceries for today. And so they go and get some groceries and they take them up to her apartment and they knock on the door and then they run outside and she goes to the door and she finds these groceries and answer to her prayer. And she goes to the window and she says, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer. And then they yell up to her, you stupid old lady. Says, God didn't, God didn't give you that, we did. And then her answer is, the devil may have brought it, but God's the one who sent it. <laughs> the devil may have brought it, but God sent it. And that's exactly the way the world works. You know, the devil's doing his bidding, but ultimately, everybody works for God. So there's the move to Jerusalem to carry out his eternal, his eternal plan. And Lazarus, his friend in Bethany, the city of Bethany, is raised from the dead. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, you may remember. And in Luke chapter 10, you have Jesus coming on one occasion, as he did apparently many times. He would go to their house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember the Luke 10 episode where... Um, Martha is busy because Jesus is here and she's like running around crazy. And and Mary is at Jesus' feet and she's not worried about all the other stuff that Martha is. And Martha's perturbed at Mary. And so she says to Jesus, you know, my paraphrase, tell her to get off of her duff and help me. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, Martha, Martha. And I always add this, whenever I say that, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in big trouble. (laughs) It's like when your mom said your middle name. You've done something wrong. Martha, Martha. And then he says, you've got all of these preparations, you've got all this to do, but there's really one thing that's needful. And Mary has chosen the better. So this is, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. Friends of Jesus, whom he had visited on occasion. That was one of them. But he's died. Jesus has been away. And he comes, he's told that Lazarus has died in John chapter 11. And the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. It's his weeping at the death of, of Lazarus. But in the two, ver- two verses before that, in John eleven thirty three, John eleven thirty three. It says that Jesus was deeply moved and he was troubled. And then in verse 35, it says he wept. So he had three reactions going on. He's deeply moved, he's troubled, and he wept at the news of Lazarus having died. Now, here's why I care about that. Because the word that's translated deeply moved means he's angry. And he's troubled, he's agitated. Now, what is Jesus angry? What's he angry about? I mean, he's being sorrowful, but what's he angry about? My first thought is that, you know, he's not 
yet overcomes uh, death by dying on the cross. And so he's angry at that, at death. He's angry at death. He's angry at the effects of sin. He's angry at situational evil because he knows the cause of situational evil is moral evil. And he, he hates it. And he hates the, the effects of it. And so he's angry, and he's agitated, but he's also overcome with emotion, and he, and he wept. And then, of course, he brings Lazarus forth. And he uses it, and, and remember, that's situational evil. There's nothing there that says that Lazarus sinned, and therefore he died. <laughs> so all these people who say, these faith healer types, you know, who say, or the prosperity types, the you know, health and wealth people, God wants you healthy. And if God wants everybody healthy, how does anybody die? And, and we had a, a, a brother in our church several years ago who contracted cancer. And he had a neighbor who was of the health and wealth variety telling him this. Hey, God doesn't... And here's a guy with cancer. And he's asking me, well, what about that? And I say, I don't know what the Lord has for you. I don't know what the Lord has for me. I can tell you this, that if the, unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. And death is a part of the fall, just like sickness is. And if what that neighbor told you is true, then nobody dies. But Lazarus died. And he died just for the same reason everybody else does. Because we live in a fallen world. Not because he did something in particular. But Jesus healed him. In this case, raised him from the dead. Showing his mercy over situational evil. And showing himself to be the God of of life. Alright, then the bottom of page 15. The final week. Passion week. Jesus' suffering and death. And the events of that final week, his death and his burial and his resurrection, are found in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, all four. Now, I point that out because not all of the events are in all of the Gospels. In fact, most of the events are not in all of the Gospels. But those two things, his death and his resurrection, are in all four. So why do you think that is? Well, because this is the purpose for which he has come. And now it's come to its, his ministry has come to its climax. And all four of the gospel writers then record those events of his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why then in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, you can have this summary of the gospel. Do you remember that? Paul says in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that I delivered to you what was of first importance that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised according to the Scriptures. Because those are the fundamental facts of the, the good news of the Gospel. God has come as man. He has died for our sin. But we know that He has conquered sin by virtue of the fact that He's been raised. If He's not, the reason He was raised was to attest that God the Father accepted His death. So both of those together, he dies as a sacrifice for our sins and the Father raises him because he has completed the work and his sacrifice is complete and perfect and now that's the good news. But those events, death, burial, and resurrection, 
are just a summary of the facts that must be believed around the gospel. But I just want to make sure you're clear that just believing that Jesus died or even believing that Jesus rose does uh, does not mean that one has been born again. That just believing the facts of the gospel intellectually does not mean that one has been given spiritual life, that they've been regenerated, that they've been born again. And a lot of people make that mistake of saying, well, look, that's the gospel. Do you believe Jesus died? Do you believe he rose? Okay, you're good to go. But this one who died and rose is your God, and he's your Lord. And you bow before him, and you give your life to him. And the one who is born again, the one who is given new life, wants to follow him. So sometimes people ask, do you believe in lordship salvation? You ever heard that term, lordship salvation? You know, my answer is, is there any other kind? <laughs> you know, because Jesus is Jesus is Savior and He is Lord. And you don't have the one without the other. All right, if you look on page 16 then. You can fill in these events. <clears throat> Number nine, there's the woman at the well. Or the Samaritan woman, if you please. Woman at the well, Samaritan woman. And then number 10 there is uh, his Galilean ministry. Galilean ministry. So you've got the woman at the well, Galilean ministry. Number 11 is the healing at Bethesda. Woman at the well, Galilean ministry, healing at Bethesda. Number 12 is the healing of the Phoenician girl. Woman at the well, Galilean ministry, healing at Bethesda, healing of the Phoenician girl. The transfiguration is number 13. And then the move to Jerusalem. And then Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus. And then Passion Week, or the final week. So, woman at the well, Galilean ministry, healing at... Bethesda, number 12 is healing of the Phoenician girl. Number 13 is the transfiguration. 14, move to Jerusalem. 15, the raising of Lazarus. And then 16 is Passion Week. All right. Well, that is just a two-week, very uh, a flyover of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, but the life and ministry of Jesus then is foundational for the rest of your New Testament. And that life and ministry of Jesus is recorded in the first four books of your New Testament. The, we call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why if you have a red letter edition of the Bible with the words of Christ in red, most of the red is in those first four books because that's where he had his earthly ministry and that's where he did his direct discourse. You'll find some red later on where he's being quoted, but most of it's in those first four. I can't find, have I told you guys, I've, I've looked for a non-red letter edition. I, I don't like red letter editions, personally. But I can't, I mean this one, the one I have behind me, is a all black letter. But you can't, it's hard to find. They're all Now why don't I like red letter? 
Because uh, sometimes people think that the words of Jesus that he spoke on earth are somehow different or somehow elevated from the rest of the words in the Bible. And did you know they're not? Because they're actually all his words. This is all the word of God. And so there's nothing particularly elevated about about those words. So it, we, we'll have to all keep our red letters because that's all you can buy. But just don't get the false notion that there's something particularly special about those versus the words of Paul or Peter or James or David or Moses. The entire Bible is, is God's word. So that's where you'll see the red letters because that's the life and times of Jesus. Now you come to the fifth book of your Bible. And building upon what Jesus has done, you have the book of the uh, the book of Acts, page seventeen, the Acts and the Epistles or the letters of the apostles. And for the remainder of our time, and then next week we'll look at the book of Acts. Now, this fifth book in your Bible is a transition then. Because remember I've said that Jesus has laid the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And now everything else that follows flows out of the person and work of Jesus. The book of Acts then serves as a transition, a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of your New Testament. Because in the book of Acts now, the apostles, Jesus' first followers, are going to take his message and they are going to and they are going to found his church and they're going to expand his mission. So it's a transition and let me give you some of the ways areas in which it's a transition. It's a transition from one nation to all nations. Who was the one nation? And we've and I beat it to death for you all last year, you know, all last semester. But these are the these are the descendants of Abraham, and why Abraham? You know, we've gone Jesus sing or God singled out Abraham and his line and the twelve tribes, and all of that. And so the Old Testament has been focused upon one nation, upon Israel, and God's chosen people. Now they're chosen to carry out God's. God's purposes. They are not, now hear this, they're not chosen for salvation. So when we speak of Israel being God's chosen people, not everybody who was in Israel, everybody who was a Jew, was saved. Sometimes people, and and it's easy to get that mixed up because in the New Testament it's going to talk about us being chosen and chosen for salvation. The nation of Israel was chosen indeed, but not everybody in Israel was chosen for salvation. But the nation was chosen to carry out God's God's purposes. So this is a transition now from one nation to all nations. It's a transition from the law. Now that Christ has died, the law is done. Well, now we got a serious transition going on, don't we? Because we've all been living, you know, they have all been living under the law. And it should not then surprise you that issues will arise in the early church about, well, now what are we supposed to do? 
I mean, what about things like circumcision? And that's going to come up in the book of Acts. So it's a transition from the law to grace. From one nation to all, from law to grace. From Israel to the church. So not only from one nation to all nations, but from Israel to the church. That the focus of how God is carrying out his work in his world moves from Israel to the church. And then, lastly, it's a transition from the apostles to, for lack of a better term, um, a royal priesthood, the priesthood of believers. From the apostles to, like, all of us (laughs) going and carrying out the Great Commission. So if you, if you want one word to describe the book of Acts, it's transition. It's a transition from all of that stuff. But it's called the Act. We call it the book of Acts. Dr. Combs is teaching on the book of Acts behind the wall there. But we just call it shorthand Acts. And when we say turn to Acts chapter, we'll just say Acts. But, but it's the Acts of who? The Acts of the Apostles. Why the Acts of the Apostles? Because those are special guys, as I've, I've already said. I'll beat on that some more in a bit. So as you come to page 17, the first thing you see in Acts chapter 1 is the ascension. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to many people for 40 days. Then he gathered together his apostles, plus a few others, and he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, you see there. He ascended into heaven. Now, when he ascended into heaven, here's what Acts chapter 1 tells us. That he ascended and they they watched him ascend. And then it says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They were at the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. And then an angel appears and says that he will return just as you have seen him go. And guess where he's going to return to? Lo and behold. And in fact, in the first part of your Bible, in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah 14 and verse 3, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. So this is this prediction, this prophecy, that when he comes to establish his kingdom, his feet, he's going to return, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, he's going to return there. Now, I wanted to read for you that line out of Zechariah 14.3, that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives to in our final 30 seconds. Contrast that with 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 17 and 18 where the Bible says that we who are alive and remain at the time of the Lord's return will be caught up together. But where? Where will we meet the Lord? So what? You got the feet on Mount of Olives? 
and yet you got the feet in the air. I mean, what are we? So which is it? But here's the thing. What that what that's telling us is what the Bible teaches. Then later on, that the second coming is in two phases. There's the air phase, and there's the land phase. Okay. There's the rapture. There's the being caught up, and then there's the return to earth. But in the first part of your Bible, they only knew about they only knew about one of those: the return to earth to set up the kingdom. But Jesus revealed for the first time that he was going to bring them to where he is in John chapter 14. That was the first time. First hint of a catching away, a rapture. So none of the prophets knew anything about this rapture thing. Jesus Jesus speaks of it for the first time in John chapter 14. And then the Apostle Paul gives a fuller explanation of it in a couple of passages in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and then in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the in the air so the uh, return the second coming is going to be in two phases to be the rapture and then there will be the return to, to earth alright we'll pick it up there next week